This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Autism Spectrum Disorder. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Hugh Blair, a Scottish lord from the 1700s, was known to be eccentric and nicknamed the Daft Lad of Borg. Some of his unusual behaviors included always wearing the same clothing, requesting the same seat in church, keeping things in the same order, obliviousness to social cues such as not initiating greetings or making unannounced visit to others. He also seemed to be unaware of being the object of ridicule and preferred to be alone or in the company of animals rather than people. Modern-day authors and historians postulate that Lord Blair may have had what we now know as autism spectrum disorder. The word autism itself is derived from the Greek word autos, referring to self. Swiss psychiatrist Eugen Bleuler first used the term autismus in 1910 to describe schizophrenia, a condition of social withdrawal and internalization. A few years later, in 1925, Russian child psychiatrist Grinya Sukareva defined what she called schizoid psychopathies in childhood, which aligns well with the current DSM-5 criteria for autism spectrum disorder. Today, the CDC estimates that one in 44 children in the United States has autism spectrum disorder, making it quite common. This guarantees that all clinicians will treat patients with autism. So. Clinician caring for all ages can benefit from becoming familiar with autism and the unique aspects of its care. To that end, I've invited two of Ohio State University's experts in autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Christopher Hanks is an associate professor of internal medicine who founded and directs the Center for Autism Services and Transition. And Dr. Ashley Bird is an assistant professor of psychiatry who specializes in treating patients with not only autism spectrum disorder, but also intellectual and developmental disabilities. Chris, Ashley, welcome back to MedNet. Thank you. Thank you. And Chris, um, can patients outgrow or be cured of autism, or is it a permanent diagnosis? Autism is a biologically based lifelong uh, condition, so, so we do not in, expect cure. Uh, the manifestations of it can evolve throughout a lifetime, so, so how it manifests in a young child might be different than that of an adult, but, but it is a lifelong condition. Okay, and Ashley, for an adult who thinks that they may have undiagnosed autism, is there any benefit in pursuing that diagnosis later in life? Absolutely. I work with a number of people that have been given a diagnosis later in life, and a common thing that they, they often tell me is that they've always felt that they were different in some way. They felt like they never fit in, but they didn't know why or how. And so getting that diagnosis helped 
have a better understanding of their experiences and a validation of what they've experienced. Mm -hmm. In addition, having the diagnosis also does help um, increase your access to specific supports and therapies as well as protection under the ADA. Okay, perfect. We're gonna get started in a moment, but before we do, I wanted to let you know about our yearly needs assessment, which will be starting very shortly. So if you have any topics that you're interested in seeing on the program, please su submit your suggestions by using either the ask a question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player, which you can use to not only submit suggestion, but also questions you may have about each of our programs, or you can also complete the needs assessment survey on our webcast library webpage by using this QR code to take you directly there. Or you can go to ccme.osu.edu and navigate to our webcast library. There you will also find the full complement of our 120 programs, including ones like care of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Now let's get started. Chris? Thank you. Um, so uh, I'm going to get us started. Uh, as, as we've mentioned, we're talking about autism spectrum disorder. Uh, before I start, I would like to mention that I do uh, receive funding from a few different sources. I do not believe these impact my uh, uh, what I'm going to talk about at all, but in full disclosure, I, uh, these are my funding sources. And uh, for our learning objectives today, we intend to uh, discuss and help understand the core features of autism and how they present throughout the life course. Uh, we intend to focus on, you know, I have a little bit of time talking about the medical versus the social model of disability and how that impacts autistic individuals. Uh, we want to talk about and recognize common co-occurring diagnoses and then increase your comfort in recognition and management of both physical, mental, and behavioral uh, presentations that may occur in autistic individuals. So with that in mind, we're going to get started uh, talking about what autism is. Um, and as we mentioned at the beginning, autism is a biologically based condition. Uh, what I mean by that is we believe it to be, you know, most often genetically uh, derived, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But it is lifelong. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It, uh, by definition, the signs and symptoms are present in early childhood, but this may not become obvious until later in childhood or adulthood as demands or, you know, or situations change or increase. Uh, the diagnosis, if you look at the DSM-5, is based on two key criteria of differences in social communication and interaction and repetitive or restrictive patterns of it, behaviors, interests, or activities. What does that mean? So differences in social communication and interaction tend to center around interpersonal interactions uh, and communication uh, experiences. And so that may be things like uh, some individuals on the autism spectrum may not recognize social cues or gestures or things like that in the same way that others do and so may struggle with the nonverbal communication part of things. Or they may struggle or experience differently the back and forth uh, communication and, and kind of the reciprocity that, that occurs in, in a lot of our typical communication experiences. Um, the repetitive or restrictive patterns of behavior, interests, or, or activities can manifest in a variety of ways as well. That can include um, things like repetitive movements, so you, you, know, so you may be familiar with uh, what's colloquially referred to as stimming, whether that's hand flapping or certain movements or spinning items or things like that. Um, it can also manifest as uh, uh, a very fixed interest in certain topics or, or, uh, or activities. Um, and so someone might be very focused and very, you know, into the, you know, no great depth about certain topics. Um, they also may have certain, you know, patterns of behavior that, that persist throughout different settings or uh, patterns throughout their day that they really you know, prefer to stick to. And if, they, if you, they have to deviate from those patterns, that can be quite challenging for them. Um, this can, you know, in, in young children, sometimes you'll hear about you know, children lining up toys or playing with them in a very you know, typical kind of structured patterns. Um, in older adults, this could manifest in different ways. I think it's important to realize that although these are often thought of as, as, you know, and if you read the DSM criteria, it refers to these as deficits. I think there are some that will argue that these may not be deficits, but they are differences. And in some cases, these, you know, fixated, you know, structured patterns that they have may actually help them thrive in certain scenarios or in certain jobs or opportunities. And so we, we shouldn't look at this all as, as negative, but as just a, a different manifestation of, of the human person. 
So with that in mind, let's talk a bit about what causes autism. Um, as I mentioned briefly, we do believe that the primary cause of autism is, is based on genetic factors. There are a lot of studies looking at this. Um, and the, the rate of heritability varies depending on which study you look at, ranging from 40% to 90%, which is obviously a very big range. That's largely driven by um, ongoing understanding. The more recent studies are suggesting around an 80% heritability rate. Most autistic people do not have a monogenic finding that, as the, the etiology of their autism. So most will have multiple genes or kind of gene, gene interaction or you know, gene environment interactions that may contribute. Um, I think it's important to realize that because we're able to identify a genetic cause in, in a number of, of autistic patients, we should consider offering genetic testing to these individuals if they're diagnosed as autistic. Um, that does not mean everyone will be able to identify a causative gene, but there are specific conditions, things like Fragile X um, you know, or uh, Williams syndrome or trisomy 21 that do have higher rates of, of autistic presentations. And so, and, and some others that, you know, there are mutations in like P10 genes that can convey some other risk with cancer and things like that. So, so considering genetic testing is reasonable. There have been a lot of studies in the literature looking at prenatal and perinatal exposures. Uh, contributing to autism in one way or another, you know, and if you, if you watch the news, you'll see stuff about, you know, maternal or, parent or, or paternal age or, you know, certain medicines or substances that someone may have ingested, you know, throughout uh, pregnancy that may have contributed to an autism diagnosis. These are really being questioned, and I think those studies are, are interesting, but definitely not confirmed at this point, um, and, uh, and we, most of what we can find suggests more towards genetic causes. I do want to mention vaccines very quickly. I'm sure everyone listening is aware of the, the vast history of conversations about vaccines contributing to a diagnosis of autism. At this point, the evidence is very clear that we have no evidence to support vaccines causing, causing autism. We could have an entire talk on that topic, but I'm going to leave it at that for today. Um, as you are probably aware, the prevalence of autism is increasing. And so on this slide, you can see dating back from the year 2000 to the year 2018, uh, the prevalence of autism increasing steadily uh, over time. These numbers are per 100,000. So currently it's 23 per 100,000 or one in 44 as Jingjing mentioned in the introduction. Um, what's the reason for this increase? Uh, you know, there's been a, a lot of thoughts about that, but the vast majority of this increase is felt to be due to increased recognition and awareness uh, by physicians and, and the general public, as well as improved screening uh, approaches leading to us recognizing autism in many, many people that we were not recognizing it in, in the past. Uh, that means that some people that were previously diagnosed as having a somewhat nondescript developmental disability are now being diagnosed with autism, and so that's part of that, and some of it is recognizing it in people that we have missed it in the past. Um, I will highlight that, as was mentioned at the beginning, we, we, our current best estimates are 1 in 44 children and 2.2% of adults in the United States are diagnosed on the autism spectrum. I think it's also important to realize that it is under-recognized in some populations, and particularly we, we now know that autism is under-recognized in females and under-recognized in uh, underrepresented minorities. Uh, and so having a heightened suspicion in, in those populations to consider screening or diagnosis uh, is important. Before we dive in more about autism, I want to step back and talk a bit about our, how we think about disability um, within medicine and with, within our society. Uh, and the reason for this is because historically we've really looked at autism through the medical model, which focuses on the individual and their impairment and remediation of their skills so that they can progress along a typical developing pathway. This is the source of the words like disorder. You know, we, we talk about autism spectrum disorder, although there are many within the autism community that would like to change that language. And, we, and as I mentioned before, the, the diagnostic criteria talk a lot about deficits. Again, that's a word that many in the autism community would like to change. Uh, this is also, I believe, the reason why we spent so much time searching for a cure for autism, because we have looked at it as a, as a, a, a medical you know, condition rather than a part of a person. Um, and so, so that impacts how we all approach it, and I think is ingrained in all of us as we see an individual on the autism spectrum and think about how to help them. Uh, and so important to recognize historically, that's been how we've looked at it. But there's been a fairly significant shift 
towards looking at it more towards the social model, and I would advocate that we do this more. And what that means is we should view it, the disability or the diagnosis as a result of environmental barriers and societal barriers that these individuals experience. And so, you know, to correlate, if you were to look at someone with, um, you know, a physical disability that left them in a wheelchair, we don't assume that they should, you know, have to navigate the system without ramps, without elevators and things like that. The same applies for an individual on the autism spectrum. We should do our best to try and provide accommodations to help overcome these barriers and support them in the system. This, this concept looks not just at the impairment, but also at strengths and abilities and recognize that, that autistic individuals are not just disabled. They have many strengths, many abilities, and if we can help them in, you know, manifest those and use those, they, they have a lot of opportunity to, you know, contribute to society. And I, and this last point on here mentions the neurodiversity movement, which many of you may have heard of. A lot of autistic self-advocates have been uh, involved in advocating for themselves and saying, hey, you know, you know, we are more than what we've been labeled as. One more comment on this part of the conversation is really about the language you use for autism. Throughout this conversation, you'll probably hear us use multiple ways of referring to autism, and that's based on the history of this. Historically, we've mostly used person-first language, referring to it as a person with autism. Um, more recently, with the neurodiversity movement and with more self-advocates coming forward, there's been much more movement towards using identity-first language, referring to them as an autistic person. Um, and you'll, you'll see that if you look at even medical literature, it's shifted to where most publications now are using identity-first you know, language instead of person-first language. That being said, when an individual comes in to see you in the office, we should really seek to understand what their preferences are and, and use that language. So if a person refers to themselves as autistic, very reasonable to use that language. If a person prefers to be referred to in, first, in person first language, we should use that and, and respect their desires. So let's get back into kind of more clinical stuff about autism. Um, screening for autism has been a big conversation over the last 20 years, and anyone that's involved in pediatric care has hopefully already incorporated this into their practice. The most commonly used screening tool is the MCHAT or the MCHAT Revised, which is this top one listed here. And it's targeted towards uh, children ages 16 to 30 months. The current guidelines recommend using it at uh, 18 and 24 months. Uh, this is a fairly good tool. It's fairly sensitive and fairly specific, but you can see based on that sensitivity of 0.83 that it does mean it will not catch all individuals. 17% uh, roughly will be missed, which means that there will be opportunity later to catch some of these. If you are not currently using this and you see um, young children for well visits, you should absolutely start incorporating this into your practice. Um, it's really standard of care at this point. These other screeners on here that I've listed, the ASSQ and the AQ, which are different screeners that have been developed for different ages, are really not ones that are typically used in a regular you know, basis in most practices. And there's no current guidelines recommending screening at those ages. Uh, our main goal has been early intervention and, and early you know, screening and diagnosis. However, if you have an individual that you're, you're seeing and thinking, boy, could this person be on the autism spectrum? Uh, these are some tools you could use that have, you know, have been validated and, and are fairly effective at, at screening. Uh, so you can decide who may merit further diagnostic evaluation. Um, so how do we diagnose autism? Autism is not a simple diagnostic evaluation. It's a comprehensive evaluation, often involves a history and physical that, that many of us you know, may be comfortable with, but then also some specific diagnostic tools um, with you know, that, that are highly specialized and, and fairly time consuming and really require a specialized training to pursue. In pediatric settings, this is normally done by um, kind of multidisciplinary teams that may include behavioral and developmental pediatrics, it may include psychology, psychiatry, uh, sometimes neurology, often different therapists as well, um, who all work together to kind of proceed with the evaluation. Um, in the adult healthcare settings, there's often not that same type of opportunity for the, the multidisciplinary team. And so generally, you know, we will end up referring to psychologists or neuropsychologists in the community that have comfort and experience using these tools. Uh, and if, if you care for adults and, and are looking for that often, you know, you have to kind of reach out to psychologists and, and explore which ones may be able to perform these tools in, an, in a skillful way. 
Um, I think most importantly, though, as any of us who've referred someone for a diagnostic evaluation know, the time frame for diagnosis is often long. Um, and there is no need to wait for a diagnosis to refer for intervention. So if an individual would benefit from certain therapies or treatments, there's no reason to wait to confirm a diagnosis. Let's get them started with, uh, you know, interventions. And we'll talk more about that as we go. So what's your role as a primary care doctor, since that's most of what our audience is here, in caring for autistic patients? Um, I've highlighted four key things here, and I'm going to talk about each of them individually in the next few slides as well. Uh, number one is we want to avoid diagnostic overshadowing. And diagnostic overshadowing is the misattribution of something for an already diagnosed condition. And what I mean by that is, as an example, you know, we often, I often see patients who come in, you know, an autistic patient comes in and says, I saw so-and-so, a past doctor or healthcare provider, and complained about this or that, and they said it was because of my autism. Um, and, it, and we have to be really careful not to assign autism as a cause for all their manifestations. And, we'll, you know, and myself and Dr. Bird will talk more about that over time. But, but any patient that comes in to see you deserves an appropriate workup, an appropriate evaluation to look for causes other than autism for their symptoms, whether that be physical or mental health concerns. Number two is we want to make sure they're getting age-appropriate health care, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. Number three is we want to provide appropriate accommodations for their individual needs, and then we want to refer to appropriate resources. We're going to talk more about some of these as we go here. When we talk about um, evaluation of individuals on the autism spectrum, it's important to recognize that they experience the vast, major, you know, the vast range of healthcare conditions that all people experience. Um, but often at higher rates. In, on this slide, you can see this chart shows the red bars are individuals on the autism spectrum, the, the blackish bars are the general population. You can see that the rates of diabetes and hypertension and obesity and, and sleep conditions are all higher in the autistic population than the general population. Um, but I think, you know, when we look at why that is, a lot of that, I believe, is because of uh, kind of the societal factors and social experience of the autistic population where they are underemployed, they have fewer opportunities to engage in society, and so they're more sedentary in many cases, and that leads to a lot of these conditions. Um, doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware that they have a higher rate, and we should, certainly should be screening and looking for these things. But, but I think there are a few things on this that are, are more autism-specific, and specifically, you know, when we look at the mental health conditions, we see them at much higher rates in the autistic population, and Dr. Bird will talk about that in a minute. But also epilepsy is a much higher, uh, much higher rates, about 10 times as common in, in the autistic population. And so having a high index of suspicion to look for that and, and, and uh, consider referral for anything that could be seizure-related. And that, that's not just in young childhood, that's throughout their life. Um, as we care for this population, it's really important that we offer them the appropriate healthcare that we would offer for anybody. And I, and I know that sounds simple, but we know that autistic individuals have lower rates of cancer screenings, lower rates of getting vaccines and labs, lower rates of all the routine healthcare that we provide, and therefore higher rates of emergency department visits, you know, and, and other health problems. And so we should be offering the same care for all our patients, regardless of whether they're on the autism spectrum or not. That means that if you've got a 50-year-old female that's coming in to see you, and she's autistic and has some sensory sensitivity, um, we still should be talking about a mammogram and, and other appropriate screenings and strategizing with them if necessary for how are we going to accomplish these things if it's going to be more difficult for the, our, that specific patient than, than some of our other patients. Um, same with labs, you know, many of our, our autistic individuals struggle with needles or struggle with being touched or, or may even struggle with just being in the exam room. Um, and so working with them, talking to them, figuring out how can we overcome this and, and planning for it. It does mean that sometimes this may take more visits or, or a little bit more effort. Um, and occasionally we do have to get, you know, go really outside of our, our standard processes. You know, I have patients that are not able to accomplish, you know, things like a pap smear or even labs in the office setting, you know. And so, you know, if they're going in for something, for example, I have patients that see gynecology and go into the operating room for sedated pap smear, IUD placements, and then at the same time we'll get labs done and maybe we can get some vaccines done and all those kind of things in, in one go if that's what they require. Obviously, the ideal is not needing to sedate most of our patients for these type of things, but in those settings we should take advantage of them as much as we can. 
So please don't neglect opportunities. Uh, important in that is, well, the other thing I'll talk about is, you know, screening for substance abuse and sexual practices and things like that, which are often ignored in this population, unfortunately, because of communication barriers or because of our implicit biases where we see someone that we label in our head as disabled. Um, we may not assume that they are sexually active or that they use substances or things like that. And that's a huge opportunity that we're missing, which means that if they come with caregivers or guardians or whoever they may come with to help them, uh, you know, we may need to ask those people to step out of the room for a minute so we can talk to them alone and have a private conversation to ensure that we're providing these individuals all the proper care. Um, and then in our office, we want to make sure we're providing appropriate accommodations. As I mentioned before, we know that autistic individuals are at high risk for healthcare disparities. They're more likely to end up in emergency rooms or, or hospitalized. They're less likely to get preventative healthcare services. What can we do about that? And we found in our practice that overcoming these barriers isn't as hard as it sounds like it should be. Often, you know, we, before a patient comes in, uh, we'll perform a, a pre-visit screening where we ask them, you know, what kind of barriers have you experienced in healthcare? What are the things that are going to make it hard? And how can we help overcome those? And for some, for some, the waiting room, as an example, is a very overstimulating, busy environment. It's challenging. And when they get overstimulated, they may not be able to communicate as well or they may struggle to, you know, fully engage in the healthcare experience. And so in those patients, we found if we can bypass the waiting room, get them straight into an exam room and let them you know, wait in a quiet place, or can they wait in their car until the physician is ready and then come straight in? And that's going to vary depending on your practice site, but being a little bit creative and a little bit understanding of, of this population can help. And by doing simple things like this in our practice where we care for a lot of autistic adults, we've been able to show that they have a higher likelihood of preventative health care services, higher satisfaction of care, fewer unmet needs, and lower rates of mental health admissions and uh, inpatient hospitalizations uh, than, the, than the autistic population across the country. Um, and so simple accommodations and simply meeting them where they are and understanding their needs can make a huge difference in their health care um, and helping you develop a relationship with them. Finally, um, we want to talk a little bit about who can help us care for this population. And, you know, obviously, you can't do everything for them. And so recognizing the referral to therapies, uh, whether that's speech or occupational therapy or behavioral health care, um, utilizing community-based resources like the early intervention program, school-based therapies, et cetera, can be really important. If you're feeling uncomfortable or if you feel like you're struggling to evaluate someone because of either communication or, or other barriers to their care in involving specialists that have either more experience or uh, might have other tools to use can be important. And then finally, um, thinking about key ages that might, that might bring up important conversations. For those that are in pediatric care, recognizing that under three years old, early intervention services are available through in Ohio, that's the Help Me Grow services. Every state has early, inter early intervention and we should be referring. Uh, for those that are approaching 18 years old, old talking about supportive decision making, uh, whether that's guardianship or power of attorney or recognizing that they don't need extra supportive decision making. And, and important to remember that we should be seeking the least restrictive option for that, uh, but encouraging them to seek, you know, a, a lawyer or someone that can have those conversations with them if they need. Finally, a couple other ages that I find important those that are engaged in special education services through the school system age out of that often at 22 instead of 18. Um, and so when they hit that time, they will lose a lot of supports that were based through the school system. And they often need help identifying what, what can I replace that with in the community. And at age 26, as you know, with our current healthcare system, many people will age out of their parent-based insurance. And I've had a number of patients lose healthcare access for a time because they weren't prepared for that. And, and so we should be talking to them before that about what's your insurance plan and make sure they have what they need. Uh, with that, this is my list of references, which are available for you to view. And I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Bird to take over. Thank you, Dr. Hanks. Um, so I am going to be talking about behavioral and psychiatric manifestations of autism spectrum disorder. To start, I would like to talk about restrictive and repetitive behaviors, which as Dr. Hanks mentioned is one of the core features of autism. It seems like it would be self-explanatory and it essentially is characterized by repetition and flexibility and variance, restricted interests. There's not really a consensus on how to 
categorize or group these behaviors, but an easy way to think of it is in terms of repetitive motor behaviors and ritualistic behaviors. So the repetitive motor behaviors include stereotypies, which are essentially repetitive, purposeless movements like the hand flapping that Dr. Hanks had mentioned before, but this also can include um, like body rocking or moving fingers in front of their eyes. The ritualistic behaviors include things like insistence on sameness and so wanting a specific routine to be kept, um, very fixated interests, per perhaps wearing the, you know, the same shirt on a specific day every month. Some of these behaviors can be neutral or have no significant impact. Um, some of them we can view as an area of opportunity and some of them can be impairing. So, for example, I have a patient that has a very unique interest or a fixated interest in weather, and so for that reason, they are pursuing a career in meteorology. Uh, however, they will often delay sleep or put off doing other non-weather-related coursework because they want to track storms that are as they are passing through the United States. And especially in behaviors that are very time-intensive, it can cause a lot of functional impairment for some, some people, and that can affect areas such as school performance, learning essential life skills, and even um, relationship issues with their family and friends. The next area I'd like to talk about are challenging or problem behaviors. These are aggression, which can be directed at other people, sometimes even the environment around them, for example, throwing things, punching holes in walls. Um, self-injurious behavior, tantrums, and non-compliance, so essentially not doing something that's asked of them or expected of them. And it's estimated that, estimated that about 50% or more of individuals engage at least one of these behaviors, and they can be really impairing because they're, they're hard to address and they can significantly affect the life of both the individual and their family. And I think it's important to talk about kind of the theory behind problem behaviors or challenging behaviors. And one well-known model is the operant conditioning model, which basically says that there is some kind of antecedent or stimulus which will lead to a behavior. That behavior will have a consequence which can either reinforce or discourage that behavior from moving um, in the future. So antecedents can trigger behaviors, consequences can potentially reinforce behaviors. For example, say someone doesn't like to take out the trash, which is one of their chores. Um, sometimes they'll do it, sometimes they will get aggressive if they're asked to do it. The consequence, if they're aggressive and you know their family is like, okay, don't worry about it, we'll do it, they, they're able to escape that demand, which could potentially reinforce that behavior. There are also setting events which can influence that paradigm that includes internal and external factors. Um, so common internal factors would be things like anxiety, discomfort, pain, and some external factors could be like uh, brightness of lights in the area, temperature, things like that. And so using that same example, you know, say someone has a history of headaches or migraines that hasn't been diagnosed, not treated, if that person is having a headache while they are asked to take out the trash, it would essentially lower their, it could lower their threshold to have a behavior in that, in that situation. Um, sensory perception also can have an influence on problem behaviors um, or interoception. So this is essentially mediated by a couple of areas in the in the brain, the anterior insula, and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, and there's a lot of research to suggest that these the function of these areas is impaired in autism, and it can be impaired in one of two ways. So some folks are hyper-responsive, which basically means that they would experience sensation a lot more intensely, um, and if it's something like, like a negative sensation like pain, then that could increase likelihood for a, a challenging behavior to occur. On the other hand, some folks are hyper, hypo-responsive to st sensory stimuli, which essentially means that they can feel that something is uncomfortable, uh, but they can't really pinpoint where it is, which that uncertainty can lead to a lot of distress and anxiety, which then also can lead to challenging behaviors. 
communication is also another important factor. Um, people that have limited or an inability to express their wants and needs um, that causes a lot of difficulty in communica communicating with others, which can be very frustrating. And that can lead to a challenging behavior as well. And the reason I think challenging behaviors are really important to, to know more about is that they are a primary reason that individuals come to psychiatric attention, but there's oftentimes not a lot of digging to determine, you know, what potentially could be underlying the behaviors. <clears throat> so now I would like to, to talk about um, psychiatric manifestations. Um, I've got a list of various psychiatric disorders that are co-occurring co in autism spectrum disorder. And besides them, I have listed their prevalence rates, prevalence rates for folks with autism. And you can see that these prevalence rates are a lot higher than that of the general population. And I will talk about um, a few of these in a minute. First, I'd like to talk about the assessment of psychiatric conditions. So it can be quite difficult to do this because a lot of features of autism can overlap with different psychiatric conditions. And so there are a few tips to consider when you are, are talking with, with a patient. So the first thing to do would be to determine what their baseline is, to determine if a behavior that is, is being talked about is what's typical for them. Another tip is to consider their developmental level. So for instance, if you have an adult who has the mental age of a 10 year old, you would not expect that they would describe things or they, they might perceive things differently than an adult that has a mental age more similar to their chronological age. Just as you would with the general population, it's important to rule out medical conditions which can present like psychiatric conditions. Um, so for example, making sure to check thyroid function or rule out sleep apnea for someone that's potentially complaining of depression. And then lastly, it is important to consider genetic factors. We know that different genetic conditions may be predisposed to certain psychiatric conditions. So for example, folks with Williams syndrome have a lot higher rates of anxiety. <clears throat> and then people with 22Q11 deletion syndrome have significantly higher rates of psychosis. So first to talk about anxiety disorders, these are, if not the most, one of the most co-occurring um, or highly occurring uh, psychiatric conditions in folks with autism. And there are a lot of risk factors that potentially could explain um, the high prevalence, including struggles with social skills, the sensory sensitivity, as well as rigid um, thinking patterns and behaviors. These disorders are also um, highly correlated with, with challenging behaviors. So first talking about specific phobias. So these are really intense and irrational fears of like very specific events or situations or items. And in folks with autism, it often is sensory driven. And so that can um, be driven because of issues like noise or pain. Um, and often can present as avoidance behavior. So for example, someone with a phobia of needles is going to have a lot more anxiety and want to avoid going to the doctor or getting lab draws even if they need it for medications. Generalized anxiety, which is characterized as excessive worry about a lot of different things for much of the time, um, doesn't typically present that way in this population. There are a lot of atypical features. Um, this, this can range from, you know, preoccupation on whether or not they're going to, you know, have or lose access to a preferred item. Um, also can include things like, you know, a lot of distress regarding the possibility for a, a schedule change or a change in their routine, even if it's very minor to a, a, a neurotypical person. The way it presents can look differently as well. So someone could uh, manifest their anxiety as asking repetitive, question, uh, repetitive questions about a specific event or asking a, a lot of like reassurance seeking questions. Um, some people have difficulty voicing their anxiety and so observing them is important. And you can see people um, like fidgeting or pacing or wringing their hands. 
and with social anxiety, um, I, I think it's just important that we distinguish the lack of interest in socialization from avoidance due to fear of embarrassment, embarrassment and judgment. Because with social anxiety, you're avoiding social situations because they're very distressing and you're worried about embarrassing yourself. Whereas in, in some cases, some people with autism just don't have an interest in, in developing relationships with other people or communicating with others. So ADHD is another um, a very common co-occurring mental health condition in autism. It is characterized by impairments in attention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. And this is one where there are a lot of overlapping features between the two, including inattention, executive dysfunction, and social communication deficits. It, I think, is important to note that um, as of the DSM-5, you can actually diagnose them together. Um, and the DSM-4, having a diagnosis of, a, of autism would preclude you from also giving a diagnosis of ADHD. For that reason, there's not a lot of research in folks that have both um, because a lot of studies would use the DSM-4 criteria when developing the studies. Um, but with, with newer um, studies that are coming out, we, we, um, there's preliminary data to suggest that folks with both autism and ADHD have increased psychosocial difficulties as well as a lower quality of life. And so some things to keep in mind in terms of assessing um, someone would be thinking about, you know, is their distractibility related to their inability to maintain focus or is it related to a fixated interest that they just want to keep coming back to? Um, is the lack of focus due to disinterest in, in the theme or the topic or whatever? Or is it because that they are avoiding it because they don't want to have to expend the energy to concentrate? With the with someone with ADHD, you often can see folks that are excessively talking or interrupting a lot. Um, that might happen in someone with autism without ADHD, specifically if it's something related to their specific interests, because sometimes they can speak for hours about whatever their specific interest is. Obsessive compulsive disorder is another one that can be tricky to um, diagnose in, in autism. So obsessive compulsive disorder is characterized by either the presence of obsessions and or compulsions. Obsessions are recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges or images that are experienced as intrusive and can cause a lot of distress. Whereas the compulsives are, compulsions are the repetitive behaviors um, that the individual will do either in response to the obsession or um, because they feel like they have to do it. And so this is where the, the core feature, the you know re repetitive behaviors, the ritualistic behaviors can seem to be attributed to, to OCD um, when differentiating the two. Um, and, and this can be very hard, but usually someone with OCD will, you know, identify these thoughts and, and these behaviors as distressing and bothersome and unwanted. Whereas in someone with autism, um, it would be a preferred or, or viewed as a comforting kind of behavior. Um, you could also consider the stereotypic movements and the ritualistic behaviors. <clears throat> So psychotic disorders are interesting. Um, there is a significantly higher um, rate of psychosis in, in people that have autism. There's a higher rate of diagnosis of schizophrenia, but then there's also an increased likelihood of having um, psychotic experiences, not in the context of a psychotic disorder. Um, but the key things um, to know about psychotic disorders are that they are characterized by hallucinations, delusions, disorganized speech and thinking patterns, and disorganized behaviors. And there are a lot of features of autism that might look like um, someone is psychotic. So for example, um, idiosyncratic or scripted language. So um, a lot of, some folks will <clears throat> like repeat lines from a movie or a TV show or from a song in what we view as an inappropriate 
context, meaning it, it doesn't fit. And so that might make someone look like they're disorganized or delusional. Um, some people also, for example, will self-dialogue either as a way to process things that were happening in their day. So they're talking to themselves. And so someone might look at them and think that they are having hallucinations and that they are responding to um, internal stimuli. And so when trying to assess someone for potentially a psychotic disorder, this is where you know developmental history is really important because we know that psychotic symptoms are usually going to develop in adolescence or, ch or adulthood. Um, and so if you have any of these features that are present, essentially since childhood and have been very chronic, it's much more likely that they are related to autism and not a psychotic disorder. And so the key is really differentiating their baseline and assessing for a change. The last one that I want to talk about is catatonia, which I, I don't think a lot of people learn about or hear about. Um, catatonia is basically a complex neuropsychiatric syndrome characterized by abnormal movements and communication behaviors and withdrawal. And it can present in a lot of different ways. I've listed some of the um, symptoms or the presentation of it to the right that it can include essentially like reduced movement, um, not speaking, staring, um, having your body placed in, in weird postures and maintaining those, um, maintaining like weird facial expressions, um, echo phenomenon, so basically repeating um, what people are doing or what they are saying, stereotypies, which we've talked about before, withdrawal, which can include um, like not eating, not drinking, not, not speaking, and refrigeration, which is like kind of the scratched record repeating something over and over and over. And in the neurotypical population, this is often associated with mental illness or medical illness, but in, in autism, it can develop in adolescence and early adulthood without that, uh, the, without the mental or medical illness as well. And so there are a few ways that it looks similar or it can look similar. Um, so in autism, you can get the echolalia. You can, especially in situations of stress, get, it, get times where they're overwhelmed and unable to speak. And then of course, we've talked about the stereotypic movements before. And the, in, in terms of assessing someone with autism that might have catatonia, it's again important to look at their developmental history and their baseline behaviors. You often will see things like what appears to be a regression or loss of skills. So things that they had previously been able to do independently or, or well, all of a the sudden they need prompts to do it or they need someone to walk, walk the steps through with them because they seemingly forgot how to do it. Um, it also can look like not, not speaking as much, um, difficulty initiating tasks, getting stuck, and then um, with the be be repetitive behavior specifically, it would be important to know, you know, were they present at baseline? Um, if they were, have they increased? And it's important to recognize this because I think catatonia is underrecognized and it's very, very important to, um, to recognize it and intervene because it can have significant um, health effects for the person. Next, I'd like to talk about the management of the behavioral and psychiatric concerns. So behavioral interventions are our mainstay of treatment and these aren't uh, behavioral interventions, but I, again, just want to um, reiterate that for challenging behaviors, it's always important to make sure that there's not a, a, a medical etiology, pain, acute illness, and also, you know, whether or not consideration for like a psychiatric eval would be appropriate. But looking at the, the behavioral side, so applied behavioral analysis or ABA is probably one of the most well-known therapies for children with autism. And it's, it's very individualized. It, it, it focuses on, you know, social skills, communication, self-care, learning, whatever um, the individual needs assistance with. It takes place in a variety of settings, including the school, the home, even places out in the community. 
It's very time intensive. It can, um, it usually happens a couple of days a week for two or more hours at a time. And they um, do a functional behavioral assessment, which is again, looking at the antecedents and the consequences um, from that, that paradigm. And the goal is to essentially help them be as independent as much as possible and to also reduce challenging behaviors. And this is a very data-driven um, intervention and there's a lot of data about it and it, there's very positive evidence that consistent use can improve behavior and skills, but there also is a lot of controversy with this intervention. Um, so the current, <clears throat> the current iteration focuses more on positive reinforcement, but the original had both positive and negative reinforcement, which included essentially outright punishment for failure to learn a task. It's also criticized as too intensive for young children. And then um, the neurodiversity movement, essentially um, making the argument that autism is a normal variation of the human experience and that trying to teach, and that by doing ABA, you're trying to teach someone to be not autistic. There are some other psychotherapies that you can use. Um, these would be more for um, older, like teenagers, adults, um, so cognitive behavioral therapy looks at, you know, the inter interactions between thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And we use that for um, treating co-occurring depression and anxiety. However, being that it is cognitive behavioral therapy, it can be um, obviously more cognitive based. And so that can be a, some, somewhat difficult for people that are more concrete or rigid in their thinking. And so there are some adaptations that um, are helpful to consider such as using written or visual information instead of just <clears throat> um, speaking, um, an emphasis on behavioral changes or strategies versus cognitive strategies, again, because of um, the rigid thinking, um, using more concrete or non-ambiguous language and then also psychoeducation about emotions. Um, a lot of um, folks with autism struggle with identifying their emotions. And so if you can't identify them, it's, it's going to be hard to um, address them in therapy. And then dialectic behavioral therapy is kind of a CBT plus. It's an offshoot of CBT. So it talks about the thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, um, but it also focuses on mindfulness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. And it is helpful for individuals that struggle with suicidal ideation, self-harm, destructive behaviors, and emotional dysregulation. <clears throat> and then lastly, to talk about some of the pharmacologic treatments. So first, it's important to emphasize that there are no medications for the core symptoms of autism. Um, so, but the focus would be treating co-occurring conditions. And you would select medications following you know, an algorithm similar to the neurotypical population. However, just being mindful that um, these folks might have higher sensitivity to the effects of medications, higher likelihood of adverse effects. So you know, we would need to adjust the titration schedule accordingly, starting low and going slow. And then another you know, point just to mention is that after, even though there's been years of research, for medications, there's a lot of inconsistent results in terms of the effectiveness of these these medications, and that's largely viewed to be largely viewed to be due to the varied etiology of autism. And so, I'm just briefly going to talk about some of the main ones that we use. So, serotonergic agents. So that would include things like sertraline, fluoxetine. Um, so these these medications regulate serotonin which is found in the GI tract, the cardiovascular tract, the central nervous system. The theory behind this is that serotonin dysregulation leads to repetitive behaviors, anxiety and irritability, and thereby uh, by regulating that, you can help reduce these. Um, you can use any of them. Um, usually SSRIs are preferred because of the potential adverse effects from um, the SNRIs or the tricyclics. Atypical antipsychotics are um, so there's two that are FDA approved for irritability associated with autism, risperidone or risperdal and aripiprazole or Abilify. Um, depending on which antipsychotic you use, there's a, um, 
a, a mix of, you know, which ones work on dopamine and serotonin and those other receptors listed. Um, the things that I would highlight about these medications is that they are helpful, but they have a high side effect profile. So you have to monitor them regularly for side effects, including weight and lab work. And it's important, especially to reevaluate the need periodically to continue because there are potential um, permanent long-term effects from being on these medications. Stimulants are, of course, typically first line for co-occurring ADHD. Important that you're, you know, looking at pers or the you know, personal or past medical history, family medical history, physical exam, especially with the focus on the cardiovascular system. Um, there are potential side effects associated with these, usually appetite, weight loss, uh, potentially increasing anxiety, high blood pressure. Um, sleep disruption is another potential side effect, although um, baseline sleep issues might not necessarily predict that if you added a stimulant that that would worsen their sleep issues. <clears throat> and then the two main classes of stimulants are the amphetamines and the methylphenidates. The amphetamines tend to be slightly more effective in treating the ADHD symptoms, but methylphenidates are usually better tolerated. And then lastly, the alpha-2 agonists, so clonidine and guanfacine, these are non-stimulant treatments for ADHD, tend to be less effective than stimulants for treating ADHD, but they can be helpful in those that have <clears throat> co-occurring sleep issues. Um, additionally, they're is a small amount of research showing that clonidine has positive effects for things like irritability, hyperactivity, hyperarousal. <clears throat> and then lastly, just wanna um, emphasize the importance of social supports. So Dr. Hanks had already talked a bit about the Board of Developmental Disabilities and school-based supports. I work with a lot of folks that are, I work with adults, and so they're out of the school system. They've lost the supports once they, hit that transition age. And so it's just important to make sure that you're <clears throat> getting folks linked up um, before that transition so uh, there's not a gap in care. Some of the supports that are available to, indul uh, to adults include behavioral support, which would be doing some of the, like the ABA type interventions. There are also people that can work with individuals on daily, daily living skills, as well as groups to support um, the development or fine-tuning of social social skills so perfect thank you guys so much that was extremely helpful and i really appreciate that you didn't just go over the medical aspects but also some of what's been going on in terms of the controversies and um, in terms of what kind of social supports we need to be looking at for these patients. So that was really, really helpful. Now, Chris, um, can you talk a little bit about how therapy specifically can be helpful? For example, how does speech therapy help a patient or physical therapy or occupational therapy? Sure. I mean, you know, with any of those type of therapies, it's going to be individualized to the patient's needs. As a couple examples, speech therapy for a younger child might be focused on developing additional verbal language, but uh, for an older, you know, child or adult, it, you know, maybe they were unable to develop that verbal ability and instead are able to pursue other communication methods like using an alternative communication device, maybe a speech-to-text device or a picture system that lets them express their needs or wants. Um, occupational therapy, I've seen, you know, many of my adult patients or, or adolescent patients wanting to learn to drive, and mm -hmm. occupational therapy may be able to help them develop those skills. Mm -hmm. so that's, a, that's a couple examples of, of ways. So you really want to look at the individual and say, what, what's, the, what's the ability or thing you need to work on, and, and how can we help you get there? Perfect. And then, Ashley, speaking of therapies, what about behavioral therapies? Are most therapists trained to help patients with autism? So unfortunately, no, most are not. And in fact, most healthcare providers in general are not. Um, they don't have a good amount of either didactic or clinical experience working with this patient population, which can unfortunately lead to a lot of discomfort and potentially even avoidance in, in helping work with these individuals. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then last question. Chris, are patients with autism at, um, do they have the same life expectancy that we would expect for the general population? It's a really great question. Um, and there's some controversy in the literature about this, but one recent study suggested that there may be as much as a 17 year shorter life expectancy uh, in autism than the general population. That's largely driven by um, a couple factors. It's uh, epilepsy-related mm -hmm. events, 
um, it's um, mental health related events and suicidality, and then in younger children, it's accidents, drownings, you know, elopement into roads or things like that. And so it gives us an opportunity to recognize that those are key areas we can intervene and make sure we're talking about with our patients. Okay, thank you guys so much. Now, our audience, just don't forget to log on to our website if you want to get CME credit. And next week, we'll have Dr. Sharon Clark and Allison Macerello here to talk about travel medicine. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.